what is my character's intentions? What do they want? What time constraints do they have to get what they want? You know, what's the history? And that all informs what you're going to say. I mean, if you were to do a transcript of our interview right now, it's all because we're listening and responding. Um, and, of course, a heightened, a heightened reality. That's the other thing is theater is heightened reality. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have actor and playwright Michael O'Leary. For 20 years, he was the face and voice of Dr. Rick Bauer on the Emmy Award-winning CBS daytime show, The Guiding Light. He joins us today to talk about playwriting, as well as his upcoming actor's workshop, which will actually be happening here at Saltwater Media. So welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Thank you for having me, Steph. So for you, playwriting has been a big part of what you've done since the unfortunate ending of Our Guiding Light. Yeah. It started for me when when Guiding Light was wrapping up, and I got together with Scott Bryce, and we created a show called Steamboat. That's when my writing juices really started to flow, and I thought the wonderful thing about the web, as we're all discovering, is that you can create something and put it out there and have people see it. And so I got a lot of the Guiding Light folks. We went up to um, Connecticut. We shot it in two days. We shot nine episodes. And um, we'll be having discussions here in the next week or so about finding a home for Steamboat somewhere with um, with a showrunner. So we're very excited about that. Yeah. Which brought me to Breathing Under Dirt, which was um, really inspired, I think, by something that it, sometimes it takes just a long time to sort of figure out what it is that's kind of burning up a hole in your soul. And for me, it was the idea that I think we all hold resentments. And we all have these things that we hold tight into. You know, usually it's our family members that we hold these resentments toward. And uh, for me, it was my father who I held resentments for. Uh, my father was, um, uh, he had a terrible drinking problem. So I decided, you know, to put pen to paper and start, you know, writing about it. And it all started with a 15 minute um, short one-act play. We, uh, you mentioned before you were talking about uh, forgiveness and holding grudges right. and things like mm-hmm. this. We'd actually spoken about this with one of our author authors, uh, Barbara Lockhart, and about um, how eventually you have to take the responsibility that like, even, if the, even if the sin isn't on you, the forgiveness is. And that's, right. you, you, that's something you don't, they don't have to be sorry for you to forgive them. Exactly. There's a saying, bitterness is like swallowing poison waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> right. So, uh, Forgiveness is all for yourself. And, um, you know, um, somebody once told me, you know, when my father was passing that they said, you need to go make peace with your father. And I didn't know what that phrase really meant. Um, it's a Southern thing. Um, I understand what it means now, which is that I went to go say goodbye to my father and I wasn't expecting, uh, him to say that, you know, was I expecting him to say he was sorry? Uh, yeah, but I didn't need that. I needed to say the things I needed to say, and I reached a piece about it. Um, so back to your point, you know, forgiveness is for us. Um, and a lot of times the person that perpetrated us, you know, they're not even thinking. So a lot of them are putting their head in the pillow at night, and they're sleeping like a baby. They don't even know that they hurt <laughs> us. So somebody once said, two people don't... Um, do things. What's the saying? Um, people don't 
necessarily do things on purpose to hurt us. They just do things. Right. You know, um, in this case with my father, um, you know, it, it was that thing of not having that safety net as a child, a place of, of respite and safety. So this play was really kind of an exploration of that. And for me to, you know, you have to forgive yourself before you can forgive somebody else, too. Right. That's the other lesson I learned, too. And I think for for writers, I know this has been true of my writing, um, that deep, emotional, intense, the hardships, the traumas, and all of that, when you're a writer, it is naturally going to bleed out of you. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and we've talked to other writers on the show, that you really... Although those things are hard to go through and those things are hard to make peace with, at the same time, they're gonna they're gonna add value to your work, to your writing, to your writing plays. And and when you can kind of bring that forward, you know, um, it it can be really a you can, I don't want to be cliche to turn a negative into a yeah. positive, but I think that's what we do as writers and, and you're doing as a playwright. Yeah, too. And and with anything, <clears throat> as much pain as there is, there has to be humor. And so that's the rub, too. You don't want to um, – um, all of that could be true. Truth sometimes is not pleasant to watch. Right. So, you know, my, my thought is that there's always as much as much pain as there is in something. You've got to find the humor in it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of – I mean, that's what absurdity is, right? Absurdity yeah. is just right. saying, you know what, this is – at, at some point, like like is someone filming me? Like how how could things really be this bad? But right. yeah. finding finding a way to not just we were speaking with an essayist really recently, and one of the things that she was saying people have, have when they're writing memoirs, one of the difficulties they have is not being the hero. Like if you're going to make yourself the hero, if you're not going to be able to laugh at yourself, it's going to be not great to read. No, people aren't going to respond to that because right. no right. one feels like a hero. Right. The, the oddity in, in politics and in writing and everything else is, is this, is that we are all fallible. We all make mistakes, um, exposing our vulnerabilities. I think people, the American people, want people to succeed when they fail. They, you know, if you sincerely want to turn your life around, um, they want you to do, you know, people are, by nature, pretty forgiving. You know, I'm, I'm always surprised sometimes because... You know, the, the worst impediment for a writer in all, in all of our lives is fear. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know what are they going to hear Shay going to say? And it's never as bad as we think it's going to be. Now, I say that out loud to myself, but um, there's still those times where you're afraid to face your, work, you know, your fears. And sometimes um, the only way to go through fear is to go right straight through it. Now, do you find working on a play that, I mean, I know what it's like for me as a, I'm a nonfiction writer, and I know Tony's nonfiction, but for a playwright, how how do you sort of navigate, because you're going to have to rely on dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, Tony and I get to rely on exposition and right. lots of paragraphs and sentences. You have to get that stuff in through dialogue, which Tony and I have always said, I mean, dialogue, yeah. I'd, I'd rather write... 10,000 pages of exposition than a single sentence of dialogue. Just, a, right. a, just an exchange rather than a transition every now and again, yeah. if, if I right. must. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I happen to think, and this could be you know something that's not true, but I think there's an advantage to being an actor by being a playwright. Um, there's, um, I can, you know, my buddy Grant used to say this you know, when we were working on the line. He says, for me to say this line, for me to make sense, I have to hear it. 
And the same thing with as a playwright is when you write it, um, you know, there's a physical writing it down on a piece of paper or, you know, typing it in. But, you, you know, you say it out loud, and it doesn't necessarily would be text that you would actually print. It has to be a voice. It has to be a voice to it. And it could be illiterate. It could, whatever that character is, there's that those uh, uh, those mannerisms and the history and you know the the period of time and all the all the homework that you do as an actor is the same thing as a playwright you know um, <clears throat> when Tennessee Rims wrote the Glass Menagerie I mean when when they wrote these plays that they had to understand the period of time before they can write the first you know sentence right you know. So all of that history, all of that studying, and you know, um, is there's a lot of responsibility to it. You know, you just can't write something un- unless you know if you're writing about during the depression, you better do your research about the depression, and that's going to inform, I think, the dialogue too. Now, um, when you're when you're sitting down to to go through. Um, <clears throat> Your first, the first, the first time you, you did, took a crack at the play because we were talking mm-hmm. about fear a little bit. Um, this this idea of this uh, imposter syndrome, like like you know, I don't have yeah. any right to do this. What, right. what what right do I have to, to do this? What right do I have to think is good? It's good, even though you you were already successful. Was that something that you struggled with switching from acting to writing? Um, I honestly didn't have any. It's not based on feeling I knew anything, but, um, I, I don't have a fear of failing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just had a, a fear of not doing it. Oh, that's it's a, great. It's a primal need to write something. And, and so, uh, you know, later on you sit there and wonder if it's any good. And then, you know, I, I don't analyze it while I'm writing it. I just sort of just, you know, write it, write too much, put too much on paper and then go back and 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 because that's the trick. Once you start editing while you're writing, you're you're screwed. You're yeah, done. you're screwed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I rely on my colleagues and people to um, give me feedback on it. But the the first thing is just kind of getting it down and not and not having that voice saying this is no good. Yeah, that's that's, that's the hardest part for for me is shutting yeah. up the voice. You're listening to so what's your story? And today we're talking with actor and playwright Michael O'Leary. You're getting ready to do a uh, a workshop here, mm-hmm. and I was actually talking with uh, Keisha Jackson, who works with the Lower Shore Performing Arts Center, and she she and I were talking about um, how she is not a playwright, she's not a, an actor, but she is a writer, mm-hmm. and writers, we unfortunately do have to use dialogue, and what she found was the workshops that you're doing are helpful for her to understand how characters interact, how dialogue can be can reveal feelings and passions mm-hmm. and, emo- and all these things. So when I'm hearing you talk about that, I, I kind of go back to what she was saying in her mind that even though that she's not an actor, being a part of the, being connected to the acting world, being connected right. to the acting workshop is improving her writing right. because she's able to say, oh, okay, now, now I know how to set it up. Now I yeah. understand how the dialogue needs to kind of evolve in order to be effective. That's exactly right. That's why you know, I try to tell people the workshop is not just for actors, it's for writers too. So if you're a writer, aspiring writer, this is a kind of workshop that will give you a good basis of character study about auditions, what it looks like. Um, and it's just a good learning process. I think 
you know, whether you're directing or writing, producing, it's all, it, it's all, the, we're all, this, it's all the same thing. And it's good to, um, I, I always, enc- I'm encouraging my actors to write, take writing courses. There's some good ones online that you can take because if you produce something, you're the boss. I guess what I'm saying is don't wait 20 years like I did to write your first screenplay or your first play. I think people should do it. And the worst thing, you know, we just, we just we, we write it and we, ah, this is no good. This is no good. You know, I had my other play, Red Rain, sat on my computer for 15 years because I didn't think it was any good. And somebody read it and goes, this is good. I, I think we all need these advocates. We need people to have a community right. of other writers who's, who can be encouraging. You just can't do it by yourself. Isolation. I just had an insight into dialogue, and I don't know if it's true, but I want to share it and see how it sounds. Um, the thing about writing dialogue as a as a nonfiction writer is that it sounds phony, mm-hmm. um, because it kind of is. You're 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 people don't talk in dialogue. And the trick to writing a play is to make it not sound phony. So right. learning to write fake dialogue mm-hmm. is is I think the key to choosing which which dialogue to use in, in nonfiction or in, or in any fiction like we can take a cue from the playwright and this is this is what people who are being written for sound like as right. opposed to just what people sound like because the trick the playwright's trying to play is this is what people sound like and what we're trying to do is mimic that like half as much and i think that's why it's that's that's my difficulty i think with with dialogue is i try to make them i don't try to make them sound like dialogue but it's supposed to be dialogue, so it has to be. It has to. It has to live in that middle part where it's clearly made up, but not clearly false. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's you know what is my character's intentions? What do they want? What time constraints do they have to get what they want? You know what's the history, and that all informs what you're going to say. And also, I mean, if you were to do a transcript of our interview right now. It's all because we're listening, responding, and that's the the, the other the other trick. To, right, because it's yeah. other people. Yeah, yeah. Is dialogues really about listening and responding, um, and of course a heightened a heightened reality. That's the other thing is theater is heightened reality. So how do you you know? Um, I've learned from Larry Moss that less is more. So he told me right you know last week he goes go back and cut everything that is not absolutely necessary. And I thought, how in the world am I going to do that? Well, I found five and a half pages to cut. Wow. And he goes, I just want you to be diligent. I want it to hurt. When you cut the line, just ask yourself, is it absolutely necessary? And um, so I've learned so much from from uh, having him be a mentor to me. Yeah. We actually we had a, a, another author a couple of weeks ago that was saying that he knew if a line needed to be cut by how much he liked it. Like if he really liked it, he's like, "Oh, that must be awful." Like you know, mm-hmm. just if, if you're too pre- if you're because that, that's where you're being clever. You're like, "Oh, right. look how clever I was." And like, yeah, yeah, look how clever you were. Let's 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 erase that. No. Yeah, well, that tends to be blah 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 lines. <laughs> you know? Yeah, if you really fall in love with a line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when so talk a little bit to us about um, the you know you're running these actors workshops. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to instill in young playwrights? Yeah young actors or, or people that are I, really going to be doing both just like I, you. I am really, this is why I love what I do. I am so passionate about young actors, um, learning the things I learned that took me a long time to learn. And I sp- spun my wheels for a long time doing the wrong thing. And so if I can take a young kid in college 
who's about to graduate or is the process of graduating and show them the tools of what a good audition looks like, about how to put together their own web series, about going to the right photographer, about making the right choices outside of an audition room where you're, you know, you're not going to sabotage yourself. Um, so when they go out in the real world, <clears throat> the real world's not going to look like academia at all. Uh-huh. It's going to look a lot different. Yeah. So what I hope when they do these actors' workshops and the feedback from I'm getting from everybody is it really helps them. It's to having the artist ego. Artists give up their power all the time. Um, when you go, when you see actors come in audition, it's like that scene from, you know, Oliver, you know, you go to acting school, like you do an attorney goes to law school, you go to acting school for two years, you're an actor, you should have pride in that. And don't give away your power when you walk into an audition room and a casting, it's like when you see La La Land, that's really true, that's stuff that happens when casting directors are eating their lunch and are taking phone calls, you know, while you're pouring your heart out during a scene. You know, so what I teach actors to do is how to handle those situations so they're not walking out going, I made a fool of myself. One of the things that uh, I didn't know until I was a grown-up is it, it's very much the same in writing. You learn to be a good writer, um, but you don't know – you don't learn anything beyond that. And then when you get out of college, you're like, yes, I'm a good writer. And lots of people are good writers. How do you sell your stuff? Oh, right. I didn't go to the how you sell your stuff class. I went to the what are gerunds class instead. Yeah, it's the, you know, Instagram, listen, a lot of the young people are way ahead of me on this. Um, you know, you, you've got to be a master at social media, marketing yourself, branding yourself, Instagram, Facebook. It's just a necessity. Uh, steamboat, not steamboat, but breathing under dirt happened almost entirely because of social networking. Um, Facebook was, I would say, 90% responsible for, for, uh, for Breathing Under Dirt to get launched with my, the hard work of my good friend Robert Forrester over there. Um, but once I told people about the play, everybody was got, they got enthusiastic and excited about it. I connected to Cynthia Watros through Facebook. If I had to go find her agent, right, you know, yeah. it would have been impossible. But there she was. You know, Cynthia was on my Facebook page. You know, I sent her a message. I said, "Would you please read my play?" She did, and thank God she said yes. And she is extraordinary. The importance of social media. Do you find that that kind of hinders the creative process in any way for that? Because I think sometimes I find that, like sometimes as a writer and we're trying to market ourselves and push things out there. So do we write the things that we know are marketable and are going to sell or do we write kind of what's in our heart and hope that it's marketable? So do you, did you have to make any concessions with well, that? Most people that know me, I, I'm a clown. Okay. <laughs> I'm just a mischievous up to no good clown. Breathing Under Dirt, well, most people won't say that's a comedy. It's got some funny things in it. I've marketed, produced a play with the help of my good friend, Grant Alexander, Tina Sloan, and Beth Chamberlain. Thank you guys very much. It was something that I believed in. I'm much more sort of comedic-minded, but this is the play that came out of me. And so I didn't worry about it being, you know, whether it was marketable or if it was going to, what kind of audience it was going to fit. Because it's a different kind of play, for sure. Having finished it, then you find the audience. Like, I'm in a lot of pigeon groups now, right? So you know what you're writing, and then you just have to find the people who are going to want it. Like, no one's creating something so unique that no one else on the planet can understand it. So you just have to find the people who have been waiting for it. That's a tricky thing, but social media makes it a lot easier than sending out, you know, blind letters saying, hey, what do you think of this play? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, there is, you know, there's a love story in this play. And uh, between um, 
you know, our two main characters, uh, Patience and, and John. So there's this sustained romance, and and so that by itself is very marketable to our guiding, you know, to our guiding light and soap audience. They they like that. They like to see the actors, the familiar actors on it, and yeah. so. I guess in some ways it really is from a marketing and, and believe me, I did market that that love story when we when we did it. Right. And it must kinda of help to have a little bit of a leg up to be a familiar face and yeah, you no, know, to have people be like, Oh, I know that guy. He was in my living room every mm-hmm. single day and then you have, you know, Grant and, and the others that I mean that has to kinda of help you get a leg up as far as making people take it seriously. Sure. Um no question about that. Um, for you know, for anybody who's creating a web service, or you're, you're a writer. Um, you always are thinking about how to build your team, and so you, you think about what is it that I don't do. Like when I got it, when I did Steamboat, I didn't know anything about directing or assembling crew. And then I called Scott Bryce from Aswell Turns, who's a you know has done a lot of producing and directing. And I met with Scott, and he said yes. And so now all of a sudden I have a strategic partner, somebody I know, and then you can start building from that. You know, regardless if you have the the, and I'm blessed in that sense that I have you know all, all the folks that watch me over the years. But it doesn't, it shouldn't stop you. I, I'm a big believer in ensemble. You know, Guiding Light was the longest running show in broadcast history because it had the greatest ensemble ever. So no matter who left, there was always somebody else that came in. There was always somebody with greatness attached to them. And they always were about the team. You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with actor and playwright Michael O'Leary. You mentioned Steamboat a couple times. I don't know if we've talked about it on air. It's like a uh, soap opera. It's like Guiding Light meets The Office. So it's about a dying soap opera, and it's about two middle-aged guys trying desperately to hang on to their jobs. And it's about all the crazy cast of characters around us, you know, the executive producer, crazy leading lady. So, you know, we just create these crazy stories. Actors think they're more important than we really are. And they always have, you know, the pontificate. And the meanwhile, the sets are being taken down as they, they do the scene. It's based on sort of uh, desperation of keeping everybody. Everybody's trying to keep their job and everybody's trying to remain relevant. So that's what Steamboat was about. And um, so is that already a web series that we can see or is that just still being shot? Um, we shot it actually quite a long time ago. Um, we had a foreign distributor. Uh, we just got released from that foreign distributor. And so we're going to be in talks with some folks in the next couple of weeks about reconfiguring the show and, and uh, finding a home for it. Um, you know, uh, I, I happen to like the 15-minute web format. Yeah. It's just funnier. It's quicker. It's, I thought it fit Steamboat better than the 30-minute format. Right. So that's kind of what we're talking to some folks about, so we'll see what happens. And increasingly people are are paying for those. Like yeah. You, mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you're doing a good web series, you can um, – I don't. What's the? There's a delivery one, or there's a, there's a like there's a stoner one that I haven't seen, but yeah. I know the story because it's popular. Where, you know, they did a, a a couple, and they're like, okay, we're we have to start paying our friends now. We we don't mind doing it for free, but somebody right. somebody's and so they said, all right, from now on, we're gonna we're gonna put it behind a, a paywall, and you know, if you'd like to subscribe, we would love to have you subscribe, and everybody responded very well to it. We uh, Steamboat was also a branded entertainment web series. So the idea is, you know, put your product here, and, ah. and so that was part of the idea. And then we had our fake, our fake brand called Lactine Shampoo. It's uh-huh. not just silky; it's milky. It's Lactine, and not, it's not only shampoo. You can drink it too. Except the girl that was a Lactine girl was lactose intolerant, and she pukes, and she's, you know, it's 
it's it's it's all funny. It's funny, right, folks? It was funny. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so there's that, um, and um, and then with the play and and so forth, and then um, I've also got. Um, some other ideas about some other things that I'm going to be working on. Yeah. And at the end of this month, you're going to be doing a, a workshop. So right. Would you like to talk a little bit about? Uh, yeah, the workshop okay. specifically is a uh, 12 guide post to an effective audition. So what I walk through with my students is um, everything from the moment you walk in to your audition when you're in the hallway, to what to do and what not to do, how to walk in how to shake somebody's hand, what to wear, what not to wear, mistakes that women make a lot of times in the, in the casting office outside waiting to go in. I go through the mechanics. It sounds kind of boring, but I go through the actual mechanics of what an audition looks like, and then I give them real-life circumstances, what happens during an audition, and what to say and what to do. For instance, somebody's in the middle of taking a phone call in the middle of an audition, or if they're eating a, a if they're eating a cantaloupe or something, I'll just tell them, you know, stop, let them eat their cantaloupe, and just say, God, that looks pretty good. Can I have some? And then go right back to the scene. Now, that's kind of funny. See, right. it's, not, it's not ignoring that somebody's being rude to you. Right. You know, but no, don't get angry at them because that's not going to serve your purpose. Or just simply say, can we start from the top? Yeah. Um, and then I get to the actual audition itself, you know, how to be, how to be um, uh, memorable, how to make them laugh. And uh, how to differentiate themselves from the other people that come in there. Because casting person's going to see 100 people during the course of the day. You want them to remember you. Gotcha. Now, do you do any sort of, like, setups? Like, uh, you know, when people are coming to the class, is there any sort of, like, I don't want to say improv, but do you kind of work through some of those? Sometimes. Things? If somebody's stuck on something, improvisation's a good way of breaking through some some um, places that you're stuck. I Generally, don't do it with an audition class, but it could be an effective way to helping somebody who's maybe shy and needs to, you know, uh, work through some some things. We I have scenes from from Steamboat, from my play, from real soap auditions, real uh, from real soaps, from uh, all my children and Guiding Light <coughs> that we use for the auditions. So they're using actual professional um, audition scenes. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. And that's going to be here at Saltwater. It's going to be Saltwater. It's going to be um, the end of this month. Uh, April, Saturday. Saturday, April 29th from mm-hmm. 1 to 5 o'clock. And you can be all levels. You don't have to be professional. So yeah. that's a pretty good opportunity for folks, you know, in a, I mean, we do live in a bit of a rural area. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty interesting and a pretty incredible opportunity, I think, for, you know, people who may be interested in this, don't really know what to do. It is Delmarva. We are a bit rural. And then to have mm-hmm. someone, you know, of your caliber to come in and say, hey, if you want to do this crazy thing, this is how you do it. Well, it's also, too, for so people that are, um, you know, um, interested in, 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 in uh, for, I, I call jobs auditions, too, because that's what they are. Um, so I do work with people for, like, when they go for job um, um, uh, meetings and so forth about how to handle that, too. So um, a lot of it, you know, all, all of it is... You know, audition lasts 10 minutes. You're in and you're out like that. But you you want them, even if you're not right for the part, guess what? They're making notes. Every time you walk in, they may, you may not see it, but they're making notes. They may say, you know, I like them, but they may not know why you like them. They're going to like you because you take control of the room from the minute you walk in, from the moment you walk out. Not rude, but you own your actor's ego. 
you don't acquiesce, you don't kowtow, you don't ask for a job, you're showing them what you know about the part. Do you know what I know about? You know about limericks, I certainly do. And how can people get limericks and haikus from us? So if you're listening to the podcast and you like what you hear, you can go to the So What's Your Story podcast.com website. There's a contact us form. If you put in your name, an email address, if you pick a word, Tony will write it in a limerick. I will write it into a haiku. We'll stick it on a postcard, slap a stamp on it, put it in the mail and send it to you like it's 1858. We'll pay a man to bring it to your house. And it might come on a pony. You never know. All right, Stephanie. Well, this is a part of the show where you thank the guests. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, for being back. It was a pleasure being here. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And if you feel like it, give us a great review there. Tell your story.